If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 13. So we are continuing our series in Mark's gospel. We will be in Mark chapter 13 for a few weeks now. While I was out together for the gospel with uh, Eric and Alan, I told Eric, who was uh, my roommate for the trip, that I would covet his prayers as I was preparing for Mark chapter 13. Uh, It's a difficult passage. I said, brother, I'd appreciate you praying for me. And I know he did. I know his family did. Also, two weeks ago today on April 24th at prayer meeting, shared with the members who were here that I would covet their prayers as I was preparing to preach Mark 13. And I know that they have and did. And I want to share with you that I believe as a result of your prayers, God providentially gave me (laughs) a little extra time of isolation in which I redeemed for study. And he gave me an entire extra week to prepare uh, for a deep dive into the Olivet Discourse. Uh, And so I I genuinely mean that. I am thankful uh, to God for his providence And I'm grateful for your prayers as we prepare for Mark 13. Now, for those of you who are wondering uh, what Mark 13 is, when I say the Olivet Discourse, uh, let me Google that for you, okay? Olivet Discourse is just the name that is given to this text because it was given uh, as a discourse, a long or lengthy speech of Christ on the Mount of Olives, which was across from the temple in Jerusalem. So you will regularly hear me refer to Mark 13 as the Olivet Discourse. Accounts of what Jesus said at that time are not only recorded for us in the gospel according to Mark, but also in the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Luke in Matthew chapter 24 and in Luke chapter 21. So from time to time, it may be helpful for us to see what the other gospel writers recorded uh, in addition to what Mark has to say. Now, together with those passages in Matthew and Luke, this discourse is by far one of the most difficult texts to understand and to interpret. And so I would just simply say that study of it requires us to come with humility, a focus on making the plain things the main things, keeping the main things as the plain things, as is often said. So there may be a time uh, or two over the next several weeks where I simply say, as far as I understand it, according to my present light, this is what I believe the gospel writer is sharing with us. Now, a steady diet of that from the pulpit should rightly be frowned upon. So let me make that clear. But it would be, I think, the height of pride for me to come and say, I have the definitive view on a text that has been disputed for centuries. So we must all have humility as we study these matters. Now, with all that said, I think it is what is abundantly evident is that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to include this discourse in the Gospel of Mark. It is, in fact, the longest recorded discourse the longest recorded words of Jesus for us in the entire gospel. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to ask the question, why? Why is it here? Why did the Holy Spirit see fit for Mark to include it in the gospel that he wrote, let alone for Jesus to share it with his disciples, to share all of these words with them? Here at Leonardtown, we firmly believe that all of Scripture— is breathed out by God, that it's profitable for us. So I believe that all of us are coming to the text expecting some profit from this study. 
and you should. However, let me also quickly add that some of Scripture can be twisted to the destruction of souls. And Peter makes it clear that the Scripture of the prophetic variety is one portion of Scripture that is most aptly or more oftenly twisted to destruction. So just as a word of caution, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is talking about the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, in which he says there will be scoffers in the last days that are asking, where is his coming that was prophesied? And he goes on to say that that day will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will be burned up and dissolved, the earth and all the works on it will be disclosed, and based on God's promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth. Therefore, he says, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish while you wait for these things. So be holy while you wait the Lord's coming. And then Peter says this about prophetic portions of scripture like this in dealing with the day of the Lord. In 2 Peter 3.15, he says, Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things. Now, just in context, that's why I gave you a little bit of Second Peter 3. In the context of what he's been talking about, these things is the coming of the Lord. The coming day of the Lord. And he says, Paul writes about these things in all his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. So humility is warranted. If Peter says some of these things are hard to understand, who are we? He says there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. I want everyone to hear this warning loud and clear. Some ignorant and unstable people, I'm just using Second Peter's words, so please hear that, will twist prophetic passages of scripture like Mark 13 to the destruction of their own souls. That is a sobering thought. Instead of being diligent to be found without spot or blemish, instead of being diligent to be found at peace with one another, as Peter says, while we wait, it's possible some could go to scriptures, twist it, and apostatize. And so we must avoid that peril at all costs. And insofar as we are alert on our guard against the potential error of being led astray, I believe we will have been obedient to the primary thrust of Mark 13, which is the imperative on which the entire discourse hangs. Watch out. Take heed and see that no one deceives you about things to come. Be alert. The disciples were humans, just like we are. And as soon as someone speaks about future events, what do we want to know? Well, when? And what signs? And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, watch out. I just want to know when. No, watch out. See that no one deceives you. Take heed. Now, with that sobering introduction, I invite those of you who are physically able to stand for a lengthy reading of Scripture, to stand as I read this entire chapter of Mark 13. Now, I want to encourage you, don't let your mind wander too far from the verses I'm reading. 
into rabbit trails and questions. Stay genuinely focused on each portion as we read it. You have known for two weeks, if you've been in this study, that chapter 13 follows chapter 12. So if you had questions, you could come today prepared, or you can leave today with further questions perhaps. But for now, just stay engaged in the reading of each verse as I read Mark chapter 13. This is the word of the Lord. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out! that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. But say whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, Let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation. The kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut short those days or cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah. See, there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. 
The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he or it is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Please be seated. The time that we have today, I think it will be most beneficial for us to consider three things about this entire discourse as a whole. And if you have your outlines neatly, they all begin with O, kind of in honor of the Olivet Discourse, O and Olivet, all right? At a high level, we are going to consider the occasion, the objective, and the outline of the Olivet Discourse. And all of these considerations will give us a general thrust of where we need to go in coming weeks. As we consider the occasion, you and I will be better equipped to understand the context in which our Lord's words took place. And considering the objective, you and I will be better equipped to perceive what application we should take away from the Lord's words. And in considering the outline, you and I will be well on the way toward interpreting the two great subjects of our Lord's words, or at the very least, begin to have handles on the interpretive considerations at play in this chapter. So we begin with the occasion of the Olivet Discourse. The occasion of the Olivet Discourse. If you've been with us for the last month or so, studying Mark chapter 11 and 12, right off the bat, you may have noticed something interesting about the first eight words of this chapter. Verse 1 says, As he was going out of the temple which should flood our minds with some context to this chapter. So the first thing that helps us understand the occasion is the departure of Jesus from the temple. The departure of Jesus from the temple. Now, some commentators, I think, rightly see an allusion to Old Testament texts in Ezekiel that speak of the glory of the Lord departing the temple and going out east, out of the east gate, and coming to rest on the mountain east of Jerusalem, which is, of course, is a nice foreshadowing of what is taking place. 
John says, the glory of God dwelt among us. We have seen his glory in the word made flesh. The glory of God incarnate is about to depart the temple and come to rest on the mountain east looking at the temple. But in addition to that Old Testament illusion, there's also, as I've stated, the immediate context of all that has taken place in the temple in just the last couple of days of this Passion Week. If you've been paying attention to the last several messages, you've heard things like tables being overturned, religious leaders being rebuked, controversies with Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. We might also think back to the cursing of the fig tree that brother Wayne preached about and all of that as implications and symbolism of Israel and the temple. We could also consider Jesus's thinly veiled parable of the vineyard owner that brother Allen preached about where Jesus says in chapter 12, after the tenant farmers murder the son of the vineyard owner in verse nine of Mark 12, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstones. He's talking about stones, talking about a cornerstone, perhaps of a new temple. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Verse 12, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. In other words, Jesus had just predicted a coming judgment against Israel's religious leaders and identified himself implicitly as the cornerstone of a new and greater temple. So when Jesus left the temple, things were already disturbingly unsettled, to say the least. Now we're not told in the second half of verse 1 which one of the disciples spoke up. But I think if you compare this with Matthew 24 and verse 1, where Matthew says all of the disciples wanted to know something, I think this could be a subtle confession of Peter being the one that was the common spokesperson for the disciples. We know that Mark's gospel accounts tends to follow Peter's testimony of his eyewitness record. And so perhaps Peter is the one who speaks up and says what all of them were thinking. And in doing so, we see, secondly, the design of the temple admired. The design of the temple admired. One of his disciples, again, I'm speculating it was Peter, said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones and what impressive buildings. So even if the religious leaders are corrupt, Jesus, at least we got that really beautiful building back there. But God had just departed the temple. The disciples had yet to understand clearly the implications of Jesus' vineyard owner parable. And they so commend these buildings and these massive stones. And hear me, they were magnificent. To clear up any possible confusion, it should be noted that the temple that we are talking about here is not the temple that Solomon built in the 10th century BC. That temple was destroyed in 587 when the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, came and conquered Jerusalem. Now, after the Israelites returned from exile, they built the second temple in 516 BC. And it wasn't until around 19 BC that Herod the Great began to remodel that temple. And thereafter, it became known as Herod's Temple. Gospel John records for us that it had been about 46 years that the temple had been undergoing work and remodeling. It was built on a huge platform, 300 by 500 meters, and encompassed 35 acres. 
Josephus, the secular historian, provides detailed description of its massive buildings, ornamentation, and claims that the exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astound the mind or the eye. In one place, he claims that stones were as large as 60 feet long. Now, even if he was exaggerating, archaeologists have actually uncovered stones that were 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep that weighed over a million pounds. These were massive stones, raising up 150 feet high, capped with gold that would reflect the sun's rays, made of white stone. It was a marvel to behold. One Jewish proverb said, He who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. You just can't even fathom the beauty. So to say they were massive stones was not hyperbole. They were massive, which makes verse 2 all the more amazing. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. So in this verse, we see thirdly, the destruction of the temple prophesied. When we're considering this occasion, what brought about this discourse, the destruction of the temple is prophesied by Jesus. We have every reason to believe Jesus spoke these words publicly. All, we, all the text records is that as they were going out of the temple, Jesus said these things. And if it wasn't this public statement, we also know from other accounts in scripture, whether it was implied in the parable of the vineyard owner or Jesus saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, that ultimately this interaction and this prophecy of the destruction of the temple was part of what ultimately led to Jesus' crucifixion. Religious leaders stirring up the crowd and some of the charges brought against him was that he said he would destroy the temple. Jesus just said, destroy the temple. But they bring these charges and the public opinion was turning on him because of these implied and these direct prophecies of the destruction of the temple. Listen, the Jews were not only proud of their temple, they couldn't comprehend life without it, as we will see. So this prophecy, as shocking as it was, seemingly did not cause the disciples to doubt the Lord's words. In fact, as we keep reading, we see in verses 3 and 4, the disciples desire to know in advance when these things would take place and what their sign would be. Look at verse 3. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So if you're taking notes, this fourth point about the occasion of the discourse is the desires of the disciples for prescience. Now, prescience simply means human anticipation of the course of events. So kids, if you're learning a new word today, if you know the word science, you're halfway on the way to knowing prescience. Science means a Latin word to mean to know. So that's included in words like conscience and conscious and omniscience. So prescience just means to know beforehand. Prescire is the Latin word. So the disciples desired to know beforehand when these things will happen and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished. Now, it's at this point that we must consider Matthew 24 and verse 3. 
Because Matthew helps us get a little more insight into the mind of the disciples. D.A. Carson says Matthew made explicit what, the imp- what was implicit in the disciples' question in Mark's gospel. You may even want to flip in your Bible to Matthew 24 to see it for yourself. But as you're turning there, just think with me briefly about the impact this statement of Jesus would have had on a first century Jew, let alone these disciples. They could not have imagined life without the temple. Its destruction in their minds would have only happened concurrent with the consummation of the kingdom and the end of the age. The very place where God dwells, the only place that is acceptable for us to worship God, gone, it would be the end of the world as we know it, literally. So if we understand that correctly, then when the disciples ask these questions in Mark's gospel, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of these things that are going to be accomplished? They're asking, when will the destruction of the temple take place? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? They see those two as happening at essentially the same time. And that's exactly how Matthew interprets the questions. Look at Matthew 24, verse 3. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So if you put those side by side, you begin to see a little bit of the mindset of the disciples. When will this destruction of the temple you've prophesied happen? And then what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Mark says when these things are to be accomplished, Matthew just makes it explicit. What they're asking about is the destruction of the temple and Jesus' coming and the end of the age. Now hear me, this one thoughtful insight helps explain why at times part of Jesus' answer is a little jumbled together. Because the question the disciples asked was itself jumbled together. They were asking about two great historical events. The destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah to usher in the end of the age and the messianic kingdom. And Jesus in due course, he will address both of those considerations. The million dollar question in interpreting Mark 13 is when is he talking about one and when is he talking about the other? And we'll get there in due time. Whatever the case, we must always keep at the forefront of our minds the occasion of the discourse was the departure from the temple, the design of the temple admired, the destruction of the temple prophesied, and the desire of the disciples to know beforehand when these things would occur. Now, before we move on to the objective in our outline, I want to kind of throw one thing out here that you'll just have to write in. It didn't fit very neatly in all my D's and P's and O's and whatever, okay? This is just for your mind's eye. All throughout our study, keep in mind the theater that they were in. If you've ever been to Sight and Sound Theater in Lancaster, they've got this beautiful stage, but then, I don't know, a third of the way through, they start to reveal more of the stage and it surrounds you like this and things come from behind you and above you and it's an immersive experience. And I think that is to be in our mind's eye throughout this discourse. Jesus, as it were, leaving the temple, comes east of the temple over the Kidron, through the Kidron Valley, turns back and he's looking and he's, the whole picture behind as he's teaching is the temple complex. 
It would have been very easy for Jesus to give nonverbal cues as good communicators do. Just imagine with me, I'm looking at the screen in the back and that's where the temple is. You're 200 feet above. So actually that'd be a bad example. It'd be like Alan looking down at me from up in the booth, right? But you're 200 feet above on the Mount of Olives, looking down on the temple complex, perfect view. And Jesus could have said, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be, and he could have motioned. Or when he says, now concerning that day, he could have pointed. You you see, there are possibilities of nonverbal cues, but that's not recorded for us. So let me turn our attention to what the Holy Spirit did record for us in the verbal cues that are left in scripture that, in my opinion, leave little doubt as to the objective of this discourse. So consider now with me the objective of the Olivet Discourse. Right away, let me tell you what I think the objective of the discourse is not. I contend that Jesus' main goal in giving this extended discourse was not to satisfy the carnal curiosity of the disciples. For evidence of that, I think you need to look no further than verse 5. They ask him when and with what sign, and he answers first and then repeatedly with this same verb, watch out. Not come over here and look at this chart of pre-written history. So you can see everything that's going to happen. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. It seems evident that Jesus is pastorally concerned for his disciples, that they not be led astray by those who would deceive them about future events. And in what follows, Jesus will give no less than 19 imperatives to his disciples. Most of them in the second person plural. Now, some of you are wondering, what is an imperative? And moreover, what is a second person plural imperative? Now, kids, this is why grammar is important and why studying in school matters. It will help you know your Bibles. It matters. An imperative is a command. Go to your room. Clean the dishes. Feed the dog. Those are imperatives. A second person plural means the commands are for a group of people that in the South we call y'all. Okay, looking at Vicky for help there. She knows, we know, all right? In other words, the command would be for more than one of you. So if I say to Judah, do your homework, that's a, first, a second person singular. It's just one of him. But if Mrs. Pam Blanco says to her entire class, do your homework. She's saying, y'all do your homework. It's second person, plural, imperative. Okay, so hopefully all the kids are brought up to speed. Nobody in here, all the big kids, we understand what we're talking about with imperatives. Jesus gives a bunch of these, y'all do something commands and 19 total commands, 19. They want to have a special foreknowledge and he wants them to take action. Students of the word over the next several weeks, I encourage you to look for those imperatives. Maybe we can compare notes later and see if you get the 19 I got. Just a little hint in verse 21. The imperatives are actually part of an indirect discourse, another part of grammar. So Jesus is not actually directly commanding them. He is recording what somebody else would have commanded. So I didn't count those in the count. All right. So the whole discourse hangs on pastoral imperatives. And I want to offer a word of caution 
that one preacher has said so eloquently, I'm just quoting him. He said, quote, it's important to remember that the you in the pew is not the you in view. The you in the pew is not the you in view. These commands were given to the disciples. So it will be up to us with the help of the Holy Spirit to try and recognize if it is warranted for us to take some sort of application from the imperatives he gave to them. Are you tracking with me? It's not as though it's not applicable. It's just a question of we are not the you when he says y'all. He's talking directly to the disciples. So we need to see if there's an applicable principle that we can apply. Now with that grand introduction, let me stop milking the cows and start churning a little butter for everyone today. If I were to summarize the objective of the Olivet Discourse, I would say it like this. And I'm going to repeat it twice because I'm about to give you the next eight fill in the blanks. And crucially, most of the application points for the next three messages. Here it is. By his pastoral commands, Christ intends to make his disciples unswerving in spite of the proliferation of false teaching unflappable in the presence of wars and natural disasters, unflinching in the face of persecution of those who profess the name of Christ, unrelenting in spite of the prevalence of apostasy, unharmed in the aftermath of the devastation of Jerusalem, unshakable in their confidence in his word, and unwearying in their preparedness for his second coming, even if the exact timing of that day is unknown. Let me repeat that. By his pastoral commands, this is the objective. Why did Jesus give this discourse? I'm arguing that by his pastoral commands, Christ intends to make his disciples unswerving in the proliferation of false teaching, unflappable in the presence of wars and natural disasters, unflinching in the face of persecution of those who profess the name of Jesus, unrelenting in spite of the prevalence of apostasy, unharmed in the aftermath of the devastation of Jerusalem, unshakable in their confidence in his word, and unwearying in their preparedness for his second coming, even if the exact timing of that day is unknown. So Allison, we should probably just leave this up there. I know it's a little smaller than most. Let everyone get these notes here. Now, I intend to defend this objective in future expositions. But to be very clear from the start, I believe that all but one of those is directly applicable to us. And even the one that uh, is not directly applicable could be indirectly applied and comfort our souls in a very important and helpful way. So from the outset of our study of Mark 13, I want you to know that if you came today looking for a detailed explanation of the timing of the second coming of Christ and events surrounding it, I hope by now you are already disappointed, but maybe not yet fully disappointed. Already and not yet. Because the thrust of Jesus' discourse to his disciples was not to provide them with a pre-written history of things to come, but rather to alert them to the difficulties they would face before he returns. 
And amidst those difficulties, which he himself says must take place, Christ's purpose was to create in his disciples a sort of immovability from the two-sided yet singular purpose of gospel advance and the salvation of the elect. Did you hear that? Christ intended to make his disciples immovable from the two-sided and singular purpose of gospel advance and the salvation of the elect. It is, after all, as we read today, for the sake of the elect that the days of severe tribulation will be cut short. And it is for the purpose of gathering the elect that the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory. And it is, as it were, despite all odds, that the gospel will advance. And then and only then, as Matthew's account records, will the end come. The gospel must be proclaimed first. I think it's missing in the CSB. It's definitely there in the Greek. It's there in the ESV. The gospel must first be proclaimed and then the end will come. The gospel will go forth in spite of all odds, in spite of persecution, in spite of wars and rumors of wars, and the elect will be gathered at the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, a teaching that feeds carnal speculation rather than practical expectation can lead to a sort of spiritual drowsiness. I'm I'm going to repeat one of the Imperative. Some of you need to wake up, stay alert in a text like today. Spiritual drowsiness that impedes the kind of spiritual alertness that Jesus commands in this chapter. And as one pastor has put it, you can end up an apostate as much through unmortified speculative desires as you can because of unmortified sexual desires. That is a claim, and I believe it is absolutely true. Let me say it again. You can end up as much an apostate through unmortified speculative desires as you can through unmortified sexual desires. Hear me. Jesus knows that the disciples in their carnal nature could be duped into false teaching precisely because of their desire to know the details of the future beforehand. It's not a secularist. It's not an unbeliever that has to be wary of this specific temptation. Are you hearing me? It's precisely because the disciples are fervent and zealous for the Lord and his kingdom to come that there was the potential of being deceived by a false Messiah and to be deceived by false teachers. Professing believers who seem eager, but who are actually ignorant and unstable and not on their guard are the very ones that can twist prophetic passages of scripture, as Peter says, to the destruction of their own souls. So when the disciples want to know when and what signs, Jesus begins with, watch out that no one deceives you. So we will do well to chart our course with the imperatives Jesus gives the disciples and work our way through them in these messages. Now, I close today with what I pray will be a helpful tool for you as you meditate on this rich chapter of God's word over the coming weeks. I would submit it to you as the outline of the Olivet Discourse. And in due course, I will make defense of each of its points and why I believe that the text should be divided in this particular way. 
But today, I want to do with very little comment, just simply share them with you. The first verses of Jesus' reply on the Mount of Olives begin by telling his disciples the characteristics of the period between Christ's advents. Verses 5 through 13 are about the characteristics of the period between Christ's advent. (laughs) Jesus describes in these verses events that proceed and cluster around the destruction of Jerusalem, but they are also applicable even beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, our Lord is describing things that will happen between the two Advents. If you are here during Advent season, you hear us explain Advent simply means coming, between the first coming and the second coming. Here's a point to ponder. Could it be that because the disciples had the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age conflated in their minds as they asked the question, that Jesus begins with things that are common to both? Then the discourse takes a turn from the beginning of birth pains, as Mark says, to, as D.A. Carson put it, one particularly sharp birth pain, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Verses 14 through 23 hang almost entirely on the imperative or the command to the disciples, flee to the mountains. So number two, the outline, the command to flee to the mountains. Again, without going into great detail, but just so you can perhaps see why it goes through verse 23 and 23 becomes a natural stopping point is because Jesus began in verse five with a warning, a command to watch out that no one leads you astray. But if you look in your Bibles at verse 22 and 23, you'll see Jesus ends that section with the same warning. False messiahs, false prophets performing signs and wonders to lead you astray. And watch, same verb, same command, forming an inclusio or a frame around a section of his discourse. That's why that's a good stopping point, a good place to see as an ending portion of section two. More on that next week. Now, the following verses are the most controversial. So I've gone with the rather ambiguous title for the third segment of the passage, simply the coming of the Son of Man, verses 24 through 27. If it's good enough for the CSB Bible to title it that and the ESV Bible using it as a section heading, it's appropriate and it's safe. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at how this passage has been, has been interpreted. And incidentally, a lot of it actually has to do with verse 30 and how you understand the statement and the timing of this generation will not pass away. Certainly not pass away. So you got to do something with that. And that's how the interpretation of the coming of the son of man is uh, debated. Number four, the conspicuousness of these things portending The destruction of the temple, verses 28 through 31. Now, kids, I've used a couple big words, but I've tried to explain them along the way. A portent is a sign. And by definition, it's a negative sign of things to come. So an example, a portent would be like dark clouds. They're a negative sign that a storm is coming. They're portending a storm. Well, Jesus says the things that will portend or serve as a negative sign of the impending destruction of the temple 
will be conspicuous. In other words, they will be evident. They will be visible. They will be obvious, to use three more synonyms. You will be able to recognize them as easily as you can recognize that when a fig tree puts out its leaves, summer is coming. The conspicuousness of these things portending the destruction of the temple. And then finally, in a sharp contrast that is in the original language and that we can see even in our English Bibles that we'll look more closely at in a few weeks, verse 32 signals a shift from there to the end of the chapter and is concerning that day. And that day, Jesus says, is concealed. So fifth and lastly for your outline, verses 32 through 37 deal with the concealment of that day prompting alertness for Christ's return. As we close, I want us to just consider what do we know, <laughs> okay? Do, do, do we walk away learning anything? And I would just contend that we know the occasion of the Olivet Discourse. Hopefully, if you were to have to explain this to a children's class uh, in Bible fellowship or even junior church, you could talk about the events that led up to Jesus sharing this discourse. Some of his parables, some of his statements, some of the controversies in the temple, Then you could talk about um, the departure of Jesus from the temple, his prophecy of the destruction of the temple. You could talk about how the the disciples wanted to know more about why this was going to happen. So you could give some reasons for the occasion of this discourse. Secondly, we know the objective of the discourse. Again, if you were to have to explain it to a children's Sunday school class, why did Jesus give this speech to his followers? I think that you would be able to say without hesitation, he gave it to encourage his disciples to be steady, to stay on mission with sharing the gospel when a bunch of discouraging and distracting things happen in the world all around us and may even happen to us. Could you say that to kids? Like Jesus gave this to encourage his disciples to be steady and to stay on the mission of sharing the gospel when a bunch of bad things happen in the world all around us and maybe even to us because we claim to be followers of Jesus. And last of all, we now have at least a solid high level outline of the Olivet Discourse for future studies. My prayer is that by the end of the next three messages, you could explain why the outline makes sense and the divisions of the text we've laid out. And most importantly, how we should live in light of what we learn from it. And so that there can be no doubt, if I never get to the conclusion of that day, uh, maybe the Lord would return or maybe I will not be here. Let me share with you one more time. You may not see the justification for it yet. My job is to show you it's there over the next several weeks. But here is how we should live in light of what we'll learn. Leonardtown Baptist Church, we should be unswerving in spite of the proliferation of false teaching. Unflappable, not unfeeling, unflappable in the presence of wars and natural disasters. Unflinching in the face of persecution of those who profess Jesus' name. Unrelenting In spite of the prevalence of apostasy, here's a little clue to the one that I think is an indirect application. Grateful that all of God's elect will remain unharmed 
until they are brought to saving faith in him through the preaching of the gospel, unshakable in our confidence in Christ's word and unwearying in our preparedness for his second coming, even if the exact timing of that day is unknown. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are a lot of scholarly people (laughs) that are left unsatisfied and can be very easily confused by or disturbed by or distracted by the study of prophecy. Father, I thank you that as you've seen fit in the preparation for this message, you've helped me to stay what I believe is on focus of your commands, your words, your imperatives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to avoid the carnal itch to know with microscopic detail the future and to, as Peter tells his readers, live holy and spotless lives while we wait. Make us alert. Make us ready. Help us be prepared to not be distracted. Help us to be on mission, understanding that you will save your people from their sins. That's what Matthew's gospel says. You'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Help us to be on mission proclaiming the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners like me, like us, and that he rose. And as the choir sang so well, he lives. And Father, because he lives, we can face tomorrow with persecutions and wars around, natural disasters everywhere, apostasy, false teaching, we can face tomorrow. Help us be unflappable. Help us to be unswerving, unrelenting. Help us, Lord, to stay the course and to be alert by your Holy Spirit. And so we will be ready for that day, the hour of which, as Jesus said, no one knows except only the Father. We want to be found ready and about your business when you return. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our church. Please bless this time. Lord, if there's anything that I've said that is not added to uh, the holiness and the helpfulness of your people, Lord, I pray that you would redeem it 
that your Holy Spirit would move as we study this together. In Jesus' name, amen.